Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of Hitchcock Happy Hour. I'm Sarah Shaw. And I'm Lydia Jordan. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't say it as interesting as you did last time. I thought I would just stick with the no, status last, quo. No, <laughs> last time was a little quirky. I don't know what happened. I loved it. I, I loved just every second it, like, of it. Fresh, trying to keep it interesting. <laughs> keep everyone on their toes. Sometimes. We love it. Um, we're really excited today. This is our uh, s- uh, holiday. I was about to say spooky season. It's always spooky season for us. Uh, <laughs> this is our holiday season finale. And um, Merry Christmas to everybody. And we're really, really excited uh, for this movie because it is probably the most um, classic Christmas movie of all time, I would, I would argue. And we're really excited about it. And we're going to be talking about It's a Wonderful Life. So we would be remiss if we didn't um, do an episode on this this, uh, holiday classic. But before we jump into it, Lydia, what are we drinking today? Well, today we are having a... I can't even remember what it's called. Is it like a snow day sour? Is that what it's called? Yeah, I think that's what it's called. It's a snow day sour, everyone, because we've had... (laughs) So many sours this Christmas, but I don't know why. They just, I think because it's citrus season, it just kind of hits different. It's sour season. And but it's delicious. It's, it's really good. with tequila. We love it. So tequila, simple syrup, lime, lemon, egg white, and then you, you go crazy. You shake it until it's frothy, and then you serve it, and it's delicious. <laughs> and friends, make sure you dry shake it because... One time I made a cocktail that was supposed to be a sour and I did not dry shake it and it is gross. <laughs> so Yeah, you gotta don't get make that, that mistake. Gotta get that um, foam. But it's really tasty. I, I did the same thing. It's really simple recipe, but I added um I've been really into smoking rosemary now that I figured out how to do that. So I did a little smoked rosemary again. But I did end up finding um some Salento tequila. We highlighted that recently on our Instagram. Um, it's one of the uh, it's one of the distilleries that's doing some really amazing work in diversifying the tequila game, and it's it's really tasty. So I've I'm using Salento today, and I'm I'm really happy about Ooh, it. I couldn't find any. All they had was Reposado, which is also what I used because I didn't have any tequila blanco. So my apologies, but yeah, as Sarah mentioned, we put out a really cute um liquor guide um a holiday liquor guide so if you haven't checked that out on instagram please do we highlighted this one was organic which is really awesome but there's women-owned black-owned you know eco-friendly whatever your your values are um we found some really awesome distilleries that you can support yeah and no affiliation we're not getting paid it's not ad or anything we just um they're they're brands that we really like and we did some research and found that they're doing some really good work and on top of that their liquor is really tasty so that's super (laughs) helpful and it's so nice to like not support you know just the big the big conglomerates I mean there's so many you know prolific liquor companies and brands that are owned by just like huge corporations so it feels nice to support people who are really giving back to their communities and are trying to do something different and special so think about it as shopping local that's all I'm exactly shopping better so hopefully you guys enjoy but I'm so glad you got to try it I can't wait to get my hands on some yeah and um if you guys haven't already check us out on TikTok now <laughs> we are those people we do have one we're on Instagram we post all of our fun movie stuff and cocktail photos but Lydia has been doing some really good um how-tos on our TikTok so follow us there if you want to know how we make our cocktails because um 
she knows what she's doing. So yeah, you get to listen to the sound of my voice even more. So get excited. <laughs> it's so soothing. I really oh, thank enjoy you. It. <laughs> I I try not to to go too deep with the vocal fry, but it's hard. I am you know a, a West Coast native, and it's what we do. <laughs> if you choose not to take me seriously, that's on you. <laughs> <laughs> too bad for you. Um. Anyway, so yeah, we're drinking this super tasty cocktail. It is in fact snowing today here where I am, so that's kind of fun. Um, but oh my we're gosh, gonna talk a true about snow day sour. I know, and we're gonna talk about this amazing movie. So, uh, well, let's Lydia, tell, in, tell us all about it. There's there's a lot to cover. Um, so I think we'll kind of take it through like our normal stuff. I think there's a little bit more analysis with this one. Um, we'll start with just kind of a quick overview. We'll jump into the plot. I have some background kind of on how it how it ended up coming to fruition. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the analysis and then we'll follow up with some fun facts because who doesn't love that? <laughs> and I'm going to try to get through this episode because... <laughs> I know. Oof, yeah. This drink is... Uh, this tequila is really yeah. hitting me today. So it's, apologies it's pre- in advance. <laughs> it's pretty boozy. But... Um, Fun facts have been, we've been like really on top of our fun fact game, so I'm really proud of us there. <laughs> yeah, these aren't quite as good as Miracle on 34th Street, but I mean, there's still some 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 good ones in there. <laughs> I'm still crying, it's fine. <laughs> oh my god, same. <laughs> All right, well, without further ado, I'll go ahead and jump in. So, It's a Wonderful Life is a 1946 American Christmas fantasy drama. <laughs> Uh, produced and directed by Frank Capra, and it's based on the short story and booklet called The Greatest Gift, which was written by Philip Van Doren Stern and was self-published in 1943. This, in turn, was loosely based on um, the 1843 classic Charles Dickens' novella A Christmas Carol. So there is, if you thought there were some elements of that, that's why. That makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Yep. Um, so the film stars are our Lord and Savior, Jimmy Stewart, as George Bailey, who is a man who's given up all of his personal dreams in order to help those in his community, um, and whose suicide attempt on Christmas Eve brings about the intervention of his guardian angel, Clarence Oddbody, who's played by Henry Travers. Clarence shows George how he has touched the lives of others and how different life would be for his wife, Mary, and his community of Bedford Falls if he had not been born. Theatrically, uh, the break-even point of this film was $6.3 million, um, about twice the production cost, and it did not reach that when it came out. It wasn't really considered a box office success, which is interesting. Yeah, didn't it kind of bomb at the box office? It didn't bomb. It had, like, it had mixed reviews, but it wasn't as popular, I think, as people were expecting, um, and it, it did end up losing money, I think, by about... It's hard to think of this movie as as that because it's it's such a a huge part of our like our holiday pop culture. And and I mean like I don't like I think even if you haven't seen the movie, you definitely know what it is. Exactly. And what's interesting is yeah, when it came out it it wasn't as lauded as it is today. Um it actually wasn't until the seventies and we'll talk about why. Um, that this became kind of a mainstream Christmas classic, which is kind of interesting to think about. Um, it's also, um, this was Frank Capra's first film back after the war. He and Jimmy Stewart both served in the war. And so, um, they came back, this was their first film, um, back after World War II. 
Um, and because of the mixed response, a lot of people kind of saw this as the end of kind of Capra's like golden age. He had been pretty much untouchable and had been doing really amazing films before the war. Um, and after this film, his career never totally recovered, although he did have some other successful films, but not, not kind of that same like pinnacle that I think his career was at before the war took place, which is kind of sad. It's really sad. And I think what makes this movie so good and so layered is the darkness of it because it is a pretty it it does have some pretty dark elements and I I think had Jimmy Stewart and Frank Capra gone to war it wouldn't have gone as dark as it did and I think that's um I actually think that's what makes the movie I think that's what takes it out of just like a stereotypical Christmas movie and actually makes it a good movie in general is is how dark this movie actually ends up going I agree. And I think that why this film continues to be, I just think such a, an important part of our pop culture vernacular is because it isn't just this like surface level, happy Christmas film. Um, I think it does really get at kind of the psyche of what was going on in America at that time. Like, I think this is a reflection of, of kind of uh, the American attitude and kind of how people were feeling post-war. Um, and it's interesting too, because I read a lot of articles and we'll kind of talk about it, but, um, how this is, this kind of feels like a really fitting film even today. Like the themes feel, uh, you know, like they resonate really strongly, especially with, you know, this is our second Christmas in a global pandemic. Um, so I think there's a lot of things that feel really familiar to, to a lot yeah. of people. I think that's what's so fascinating about it. And, and like it's, it's so universal, but also the individual stories of it can also hit on a very like personal, personal level. And for me, like personally, like total sidebar, but um. When I took the bar exam a couple of years ago, I uh it was in I took it's in the bar exams in July. I actually watched this movie the night before the bar exam to like remind oh. myself that if I didn't pass, people will still love me anyways. <laughs> My God, of course, of course they'll still love you. <laughs> I I passed and it was fine, but like. But um, like I just it need was, an emo was, moment to to connect with. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's kind of it has a really beautiful message about like you know, the, the thing that makes a person successful as a human being is, um, who they surround themselves with and the kind of energy that they surround themselves with. And I think that while it's so universal in, 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 as a reflection of America at the time, but it's also so personal as like what people are going on in their, what's going on in people's like individual lives. And, and I find that, you know, very timeless as well. I think so too. Um, so let's dive a little bit into the plot. So, the film opens on Christmas Eve. It's 1945 in Bedford Falls, New York. George Bailey is standing on a bridge contemplating suicide. Um, the prayers of his friends and family reach heaven where Angel Second Class Clarence Oddbody is assigned to save George in order to earn his wings, which is pretty cute. Um, and this is like a pretty iconic opening scene. You have like this cute kind of little animated sequence where... Um, these like little galaxies are talking to each other and it's, you know, it's really cute. Angels. It's really sweet. I think there's something really nice about it too. Like it doesn't feel over engineered. It's just kind of like what we talked about, I think with like, uh, a, an insect's Christmas. And then also with, um, nightmare before Christmas, it, it just has that kind of like timeless feel. I think if they tried to do something fancier, it would have felt like cheesy and dated now, but it feels yeah, classic. no, it's, it feels like it fits in with it, with the story for sure. Yeah, so this film is interesting because, I mean, it feels pretty modern in the way that it's set up. Um, Clarence, who's the second, the angel second class, he's shown flashbacks of George's life to help him understand kind of how he 
got to this point, like why he's kind of in this like state of a deep depression. So it, it starts, the first flashback that he sees is 12-year-old George saving his younger brother Harry from drowning, um, which causes him to lose hearing in his left ear. Um, George later prevents the distraught town druggist, Mr. Gower, from accidentally poisoning a children's prescription. So that was like a pretty big thing. Also, can we talk about like how he's like literally 12 and like doing like labor? I'm like, what is this? <laughs> Zero labor law. Yeah, children. I was like, clearly this is different. Yeah, he's like literally like a 12 year old working at a drugstore. Like he's like, yeah, he's like mixing pills. Yeah, he's mixing pills, giving people prescriptions. Like he's making Sundays. Like what is this? He's literally 12. <laughs> we we love a drugstore that does it all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that this scene is like is really sweet. Like again, you can see. How even from, like, childhood, he's really always looking out for the best interest of other people. Even in a world where, you know, as a kid, maybe you're, like, uncertain. He always does the right thing, even though it's kind of scary and and hard. And it's also some pretty heavy stuff that um, he's doing. I mean, he's, like, saving his brother from drowning. That's not, like, that heavy, but it's, you know, it's kind of a big thing because his brother almost dies. And then he's also preventing this pharmacist. Right, but then yeah. he's preventing this pharmacist from literally killing somebody out of from grief. From killing somebody. And, yeah, and so that's and like think a it's, pretty... It's interesting, too, because it is like this moral conflict as a kid. If an adult tells you to do something, um, you're kind of supposed to do it. And so he's he's realizing that something's wrong and is like, wait, no, like, I don't think he, he didn't mean to do this, but I, I need to, like, stop him and not let him poison this this kid. Um so again, it's pretty it's pretty heavy stuff, and I think what's interesting too is like these both have personal consequences to him. Like he does the right thing, but he loses his hearing, and the the druggist like beats him up until his ear bleeds, <laughs> um, for going for not delivering the pills, which he didn't realize were were poisonous. So, George plans a world tour before college and is reintroduced to Mary Hatch, who has a crush on him. Um, there's a really cute scene too when he's working in the drugstore. And she whispers into his bad ear that she she'll always love him. Um, so it's really and they're cute. like when they're like twelve years old. It's yeah. so cute. It's I so love. cute. It's really sweet. Mary is persistent, and we honestly love it. She played the long game, and it worked out for her. <laughs> honestly, she's she's great. I love her. I'm a I'm a stand for Mary. Oh yeah, she's, me too. She's, she's the best. <laughs> Stephen was like, "Wait, is this you? We'll talk about it." But she responds <laughs> like this Victorian house and was like super forward. And I was like, honestly, he's not wrong. <laughs> um. Yeah. No. Definitely not. <laughs> definitely not yeah. wrong. Mary is a modern woman. We should do like a whole dissertation on her. I love her. <laughs> I I'm down because I I love Mary Bailey. She's the best. Mary yeah. Hatch, but Mary Bailey later. Mary spoiler. Hatch. Sorry, they get married. Yeah, sorry, guys. Um, just in case you didn't know, well, this is spoiler alert corner. Uh, here we go, because we're just telling you. <laughs> so, so George has always been, like, a very, like, ambitious child. He wants to travel the world and, like, experience things. Like, he's very much one of those people who kind of is too big for his small town. Like, he has these big ambitions, and he wants to be, like, you know, this worldly person. Um, so he plans to go on a world tour before college. Um, he runs into Mary. The attraction is now mutual, but, um, his father suddenly dies from a stroke. So he has to postpone his travels, um, to settle up his family business. The Bailey brother is building a loan. 
which has like fucking dickhead board member Henry Potter who's like a piece fucking of shit. Henry Potter is like the biggest villain in like movie history. Uh, he's the worst. So I also feel like he really doesn't get his in this film, which is kind of frustrating. No, he, yeah, he definitely doesn't. I wish something worse happened. To him. I wish something really bad happened to him. Um anyways, he he's like one of those like he's this like evil old man who controls most of the town. He's seeking to dissolve the the Bailey brothers building alone, um, which is a really important fixture in this town. Like they're kind of one of the only the only businesses that allow ordinary people in the town to kind of be able to live a quality of life that's that is like elevated. Like they give people loans that might not normally be able to give loans because they trust them and they know that they'll pay pay it back. Um, and they're important in kind of, like, uplifting the town and giving people opportunities, which is, like, pretty beautiful. Okay, before we move on, though, can we take a second to talk about, um, just to, like, backtrack, the, um, the scene when Mary and George, like, kind of reunite at the, like, dance at the high school or whatever, and, and they're dancing, and this, this high school gym, the floor, like, opens into a giant swimming pool. (laughs) Like, what the fuck is that? I know. It's the best part too is that's actually a real school. So that's Hollywood High School in LA. Um, they still have that, but I'm like, as if Bedford Falls in freaking New York would have Upstate New York has this ginormous like contraption trick floor that turns into a pool. That scene is really cute because they're dancing so and they cute. think they're winning, but it's just that the pool is opening and so they like fall, fall in, in as they're dancing. But then everybody then, jumps in. It's, it's so just cute. the cutest, yeah. And then they have like the classic scene of like George telling Mary he'll lasso the moon for her and it's just like uh it's so cute. It's just the best. It's, it's really all cute. just it's so good. Yeah. I love yeah. it so much. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. I just wanted to highlight that pool because it's amazing. No, I'm glad you did because I wasn't going to talk about it. So, <laughs> <laughs> I love that it's real. Really I guess, enough. yeah. Hollywood High School. I love that. Wow. I wonder how many movies about high school were filmed at Hollywood High School. Probably a lot. Probably a lot. We can do a whole episode on it. <laughs> I'm sure just we kidding. can. The Hollywood High School <laughs> pool floor gym contraption. A retrospective. <laughs> yes. I love, I love it so it. much. <laughs> Um, anyways, so Henry Potter, fucking dickhead, is trying to dissolve this company, um, but the other board members vote to keep it open as long as George runs it, which is just the worst. Like, he's just, I mean, it's, it's It's good, but it's the worst for him. It's the worst for him, right? Like, he knows how important this is to his community and to the people of this town, um, and so, he acquiesces. It's also like his family's legacy too. It's his family's legacy, and his dad, you know, was really proud of this business. His dad didn't have like the best business sense, um, whereas George does have, I think, a little bit more of that that business acumen. But it was like you know something that his family was really proud of, and like it was their their part in building this town. And so, you know, he he agrees to it and works alongside his uncle Billy. Um, he gives his Talking tuition to his Billy. <laughs> Uncle fucking Billy. Like, we love him, but, like... We love him, but he he fucked up. He really fucked up. Um, But what's really sad is that he gives his tuition to Harry, his brother, um, with the understanding... Yeah, but but they do kind of come to an understanding that Harry will run the business when he graduates so that George can finally go see the world. But 
George, or Harry, sorry, Harry returns from college and he's married um, with a job offer from his new father-in-law. So George resigns himself to running the building alone in probably one of the like, like best acted scenes of all time. Like Jimmy Stewart's face in this scene is just like, you can just see all of the emotions running through. Like it's so raw. It's so good. Like he knows it's the right thing to do. Yeah. But he, he's just like watching his brother do all these things that he wanted to do. And then he put his life on hold so that he could like save his family's business. And Nobody, he, I think he feels that nobody is understanding that or appreciating that, but he knows it's still the right thing to do. Yeah, and but nobody's willing to do that for him. And I think that that's what's kind of sad about that, you know, is like he's doing these things kind of selflessly because, again, they are the right thing to do and it, and it's meaningful to his family. And, um, but at the same time, like his brother isn't making the same sacrifices for him. Like he's choosing to live his own life. And so I think that that's what's like, really beautiful and kind of tragic about this this film is just um is you know you have the streamer who wants to do all these things and it kind of time after time he's kind of stonewalled so uh, so sad um following their wedding apparently I didn't include this in the plot but uh George and Mary get married (laughs) they do and also that scene where they finally like he finally they like declare their love for each other such good chemistry oh so my god good. so Where they're both I talking on the phone i don't know if you know this but i actually so i um was reading about this maybe like a while ago i don't know why i was reading about this but i i read this thing where so that scene they actually had to refill like reshoot it and the one in the movie is the like it's a it's like a censored version because the original version didn't pass the censors because it was like too oh steamy too steamy it is like I mean, if you are looking for something that is, like, sexual tension and chemistry, like, oh, this scene is that. Oh, my God. It's so good, because he comes over, he's, like, really pissed but he com- about other stuff, and then he's just, like, really rude to Mary, and she's, like, super sad. And then he, yeah, he she like, comes... Him. She loves him. He loves her, but he's all, like, angsty because he's, like, all this stuff is happening around him, and he doesn't want to, like, stay, but he knows he has to, and he's, like, taking it out on her, but she doesn't know why, and then... He's like tells her he doesn't want to get married, but he does want to get married because he does love her. And then they have this like real. It's just and they're on the phone together with their friend, with like a friend of uh, theirs, with, with the friend, and then the friend wants to be Mary's suitor. I think. Right? Yeah, the like friend is trying to like date Mary, and he's like super wealthy and like running this business elsewhere or something. And but then Mary and um, and George just like have the steamiest makeout sesh with this other guy. <laughs> on the phone on the phone it is incredible it's really good and it was jimmy stewart's first kiss post-war like first movie kiss like post-war because it was his first movie and he was like super nervous about it and then they filmed it and it like didn't pass the censors because it was too (laughs) steamy all right jimmy we see you (laughs) i'm dying to see the original version i know i wonder if we could find it somewhere i know because the one that's in the movies look pretty steamy as well it's still pretty steamy i mean you could cut that tension with a knife (laughs) yeah so for sure and then they uh cut to them getting married because they are in fact in love (laughs) because they're in love so they get married um and on the way to their honeymoon, they witness a run on the bank. Um, it is now the Great Depression. So they use the honeymoon savings to keep the building alone solvent. Which again, George cannot catch a break to like go on a vacation. This he, poor literally, guy. <laughs> he literally cannot. I, 
I mean, and again, I think that what's beautiful about this film is, like, even though he doesn't get to do the things that he wants to do, like, he still does end up having this beautiful life and, you know, being able to share it with Mary and what they have is really special. Um, he, co- he comes to realize that. Exactly. That's the whole point. It's a wonderful life, right? <laughs> <laughs> so under George's leadership, the company establishes Bailey Park, which is a modern housing development. This rivals Potter's overpriced slums. He's just like such a slumlord and I hate him. He's a slumlord this- and like the Bailey Park is like a nice housing development and it's like cheap, but it's like nice for like normal like middle class families or families that are trying to become middle class families. Yeah, like immig- there's like immigrant families that he's like helping out and, and giving exactly. them a better life than. And now they get to live the American dream, um, even though I think they imply that like the cost to build these is much more than like what they paid for. But again, I think like he wants his community to, to continue to do better and to give people a better quality of life, which is really beautiful. And you can so tell this, in that scene, he's, like, super proud of it, too. Yeah, which exactly. Which is really cute. And the friends come to visit. The one the one who was trying to woo Mary um, during that scene, the steamy scene, um, he comes through. He's now, like, a millionaire. He has, you know, this fancy car with a driver and this, like, you know, wife that's all dolled up and clearly wearing, like, very expensive things. And I think what's beautiful is, like, you know, even though they have all this wealth and I think there is, like, some pangs of, like, you know, like kind of jealousy or like, oh, I wish we had like invested in this guy's business. It's also kind of showing like him and Mary have also built something really special in their town and are doing like really good work. So, but, uh, freaking Potter is like a jealous little weasel Dude, about this. Potter. I hate him. Um, so at this, at this point he offers George $20,000 a year, which in today money is $352,000. So it's a pretty, pretty hefty, hefty salary. Yeah. Pretty hefty salary to be his assistant. But of course, uh, George is smart. He realizes that his Potter's true intention is to close the building alone. So she, he uh, turns him down. Um, now World War II has started, so George is ineligible for service because of his deaf ear, but Harry becomes a Navy pilot and is awarded the Medal of Honor for shooting down a kamikaze plane that was headed for a transport ship. Um, so it's Christmas Eve of 1945. The town is preparing, preparing a hero's welcome for Harry. Billy goes to the bank to deposit $8,000 of the building and loans cash. Billy taunts potter with a newspaper headline about harry but he unintentionally wraps the envelope of cash into the newspaper potter finds the money but says nothing because he's a fucking asshole um meanwhile billy can't remember where he misplaced the money so fucking uncle billy like we love you but like come on man (laughs) like this isn't your first rodeo taking cash to the bank you've literally been doing this for years what are you doing gotta do better (laughs) gotta do better billy (laughs) Eight thousand dollars is a lot of money. I mean, if if twenty thousand dollars is like three hundred and fifty two thousand, then that would make this like, like almost one hundred fifty. This is pro- it's like probably their like years earnings. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Uncle yeah. Billy, no. come on, Uncle Billy, <laughs> come on, man. Um, so there's a bank examiner who is reviewing the company's records. George realizes the scandal and criminal charges that will follow. So he traces, retraces Billy's steps um, and he berates him and takes out his frustration on his family. He kind of, at this point, feels really hopeless. He can't find the money. Um, and he, he realizes that he's probably facing like 
prison time at this point because of the misplaced funds. It's Billy should be facing prison time, not George. I know. It's uh, it's like not George's fault. Like that's the thing. I'm like I know. I was like I I just feel like this is a little dramatic. It, it it kind it, of it it's dramatic, but I'm also like why isn't Billy jumping in to be like I'll take the fall. He's just like, "Oh no, like sorry." <laughs> like sorry, he doesn't do anything. No, he's so useless. I know. Yeah, um, it's so Uncle annoying, Billy, this though. is this is definitely nepotism at its finest. Like I don't know if he's yeah. qualified to work here. <laughs> no. The only reason he still works there is because he like started the company with George's dad. He literally doesn't do anything for the company at all. <laughs> literally nothing. Um, Sorry, Uncle Billy, I'm not a fan. <laughs> not a fan. He's like the what's the uncle and or Grandpa Joe and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. He's oh like yeah, the literally Joe of so this movie. fucking useless. The Grandpa Joe gets out of the bed when he gets like an opportunity to like go to the chocolate factory. It's like yeah. oh now you're miraculously better. I was cool. like now you're fine, but before you were like apparently like unable to leave the house or do anything to support your family. It's fine. It's totally cool, fine. cool, 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 cool. Anyway, so <laughs> Uncle Billy is the Grandpa Joe of this film, and don't yep. get it twisted. <laughs> don't get it twisted. <laughs> So at this point, George is like the desperate. So he appeals to Potter for a loan. He offers his life insurance policy as collateral. But Potter, who's just like a fucking asshole, says that George is worth more dead than alive and phones the police to arrest him, even though he's the one who has the money. Like, he's such a jerk. Literally. Such an asshole. Also, like, such a Christmas Grinch. We hate him. Such a Christmas Grinch. Um... Anyways, so at this point, George flees. He gets drunk at a bar and prays for help. Um, he's very suicidal at this point. He runs into a tree, and then he goes to a nearby bridge. Um, but before he can jump, Clarence dives into the water, and George rescues him. When George wishes he had never been born, Clarence shows him a timeline in which George never existed. Bedford Falls is now Pottersville, which is an unsavory town occupied by sleazy entertainment venues, crime, and immoral people. The druggist, um, Mr. Gower, was imprisoned for manslaughter since George didn't prevent him from poisoning those pills. Um, George's mother reveals that Billy was institutionalized after the building alone failed. Bailey Park is a cemetery instead of his beautiful housing development, um, where George discovers Harry's grave because... George wasn't around to save Harry. Um, and Harry, because he wasn't born, wasn't able to save the soldiers on the transport. So there was like a huge, you know, loss of life. Um, George finds um, that Mary has become a spinster librarian. Um, and when he claims to be her husband, she screams for the police and George runs away. So finally, George is convinced that Clarence is his also, guardian angel. Also, sorry, sorry, pause. This is yet another example of an old movie just slapping a pair of glasses on a woman to make her seem, quote unquote, ugly. I know. I was like, bitch, we And I'm just glasses. like, she looks exactly the same. She looks the she same. Doesn't, she doesn't look like a spinster at all. I'm like, she's not a spinster. She's like clearly 20. You just put glasses on her. I hate it so much. Yeah, I'm like, you just put glasses on her. Like, just because she works in a library doesn't mean she needs to wear glasses. Oh, but she does, Sarah. Because that's oh, how this works does. in the 40s. Oh. <laughs> anyway, I love it. I love documenting the times that, like, in movie, in old movies to, like, indicate that a woman is not appealing. They just, like, put a pair of glasses on her. They just put on glasses her. on her. I know. <laughs> and, yeah, so I just, unfair. it's so funny. Anyway, sorry, tangent, side note. No, I loved it. I loved it. Um... Anyways, so finally George is convinced that Clarence is in fact his guardian angel and he begs for his old life back. 
the original reality is restored and a grateful George rushes home to await his arrest. Mary and Billy have rallied the townspeople who donate enough to cover the missing $8,000. Harry arrives and toasts George as the richest man in town. George receives a copy of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer as a gift from Clarence with a note reminding George that no man is a failure who has friends. <laughs> and thanking him for his wings, which is really cute. Crying. What's the thing the the daughter says like every time, like every time a bell a bell rings, a bell rings, it means an angel's earned its wings. Oh, so cute! It's so cute, and then everybody sings "Auld Lang Syne," which always gets me all like teary and choked up. And oh my god, that song every time I hear it. I know. Anyways, and it ends with George realizing that he truly has a wonderful life. (laughs) I cried. I cried. It gets me every time. It gets me every time. Whenever in any movie when there is a collective town singing "Old Lang Syne," I, I cannot not cry. Like I cry I mean, every I, time. Like I, I wouldn't consider myself necessarily a super emotional person, but it gets me every time. Like I cry like a baby. Anyways, um, <laughs> I can cried. we just take this. this moment to highlight the first time you saw your sister cry with like the dinosaur documentary? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, hi Sunny. Sister. I love you, and I just wanted hi. to highlight the story. Um, yeah, my sister, who was not at all like, if I'm like not emotional, she's like hyper not emotional. Like, I literally thought she was a sociopath until she like hit puberty. The first time I ever saw her cry was she was watching a documentary, like a fake documentary. I don't know what you'd call it, like one of those things where they recreate the dinosaurs. Yeah, like a History Channel, like a History like, Channel yeah. thing. And this, like, it was, like, underwater dinosaurs. This, like, big dinosaur ate the, like, baby underwater dinosaur. And she <laughs> cried. And it was the first time I ever saw her cry. <laughs> how, old, how old was she? She was, like, 10. <laughs> sociopath, I swear to God. It's my favorite story. It's so funny. Yeah, and then I was like, okay, maybe she will be okay. Because for a while, I was like, I don't know about her. Like, she just seems, like, <laughs> angry. <laughs> Why is this child so angry? <laughs> and then you walk by, you're like, are you crying? I was like, are, are you crying? She was like, no. I was like, you are. And she was like, just, just doesn't seem fair. <laughs> like a little dinosaur couldn't even defend himself. <laughs> you're like, spoiler alert, Sunny, they all die. <laughs> yeah, I was like, hate to break it to you, girl, but... <laughs> So wow. Funny. I, anyway, yeah, but this movie does get me. I'm yeah. I I sorry. I just had to. Um, this movie does get me. I think the time. I think I cry every. Like if I watch this movie, I know that they're gonna sing "Old Lang Syne" and I know I'm gonna cry, even if I try not to. Every time I cry. I mean, how can you not? They just they know how to pull our, all the heartstrings. The children are singing and playing the music, and the brothers there back from war, and he realizes how wonderful his life is, and it's just too much. It's just too uh, much. when because the whole thing is like George he like they throughout the like he the, his family like while they're I think they're like middle class but while they're middle class they're definitely always struggling to like maintain that because they're always just donating everything to everyone else and so when his brother comes back and says to George Bailey my brother the richest man in the in the world or whatever it's just like so sweet it's just the best it's the sweetest thing ever and like everyone has brought him this and people wired him money from like 
Oh, yeah. it's just, it's and so but sweet. it's also it's also the moment for him where he realizes that his good deeds for his whole life have not actually gone unnoticed because that was something I think that was frustrating him that he never talked about was that he was doing all these things for people but he didn't think people actually cared or even noticed. No. Exactly. And now they've showed up for him in his time of need. <laughs> <laughs> It's so good. I don't understand how this movie, because we recently found out that this is apparently quite the polarizing movie. There's a lot of people that don't like it, like like aggressively don't like this movie. That's so interesting to me, because I I admittedly feel like the start of this film is slow. Like, I think that the pacing of this movie is interesting. And while I do love the ending, I think one of my big, like, things that I don't like is I don't feel like Potter really gets any, like what's coming to him i mean maybe i wonder maybe if this does. wasn't like a christmas movie where they're like even like even the worst people get a second chance like maybe something would happen and i wonder if that's why they did that but like i i agree like i do think i love this movie i i i agree that the pacing is a little slower i don't mind that as much because there are a lot of old movies that have a weird pacing style but um, I, I really enjoy this film and I, I think it's really good and the ending is so satisfying, but I do agree that I think Potter, it, it would be even more satisfying if something bad happened to him, but I just wonder if because by nature of this being a Christmas movie, if or that's the reason. Or even just like his assistant like gave the money back, you know what I mean? Yeah. Something like that, like I don't know. Because the only thing that happens point. is that he's like alone, and but you're just like, no, like he should go be but arrested he, for literally stealing $8,000, like why is he not being- money. He's the worst. He's also just like, I mean, he also is like, you know, I, I think they really do um, just paint him in such an unsavory light. But I think he does kind of capture that that sentiment of like, oh, people are poor because they choose to be poor. Um, and that's and that's kind of like his take. on. Oh, things. he's like, like a total you? like neoliberal capitalist. Yeah, <laughs> Ugh, he's yeah. the worst. Anyways, we hate him. Well, let's dive a little bit into the background of this film. We already talked a little bit about this, but this is from an original story, which is called The Greatest Gift, which was written by Philip Van Doren Stern um, in 1939. So, I mean, this is like, you know, seven years prior to this film's release. Um, it was actually rejected by a lot of publishers. So he ended up printing it himself as a 24-page pamphlet and sent it to 200 family and friends um, for Christmas in 1943. So, oh, good for him. Kind of interesting. <laughs> um, but him. what's really interesting is that this story came to the attention of, it's not really clear, but either Cary Grant or RKO producer David Hempstead, who showed it to Grant's agent. So originally Grant was supposed to be part of this film. Um, in 1944, RKO actually bought the rights to the story for $10,000, hoping to turn it into this movie for Grant. They had like three different writers each work on their own versions of the screenplay before ultimately they shelved it. Um, and Grant instead went on to make another Christmas classic, The Bishop's Wife, instead. Which is great, but I I like The Bishop's Wife. It's a weird movie, but it's it's pretty good. But I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Loretta Young, so I, I really like that movie, but... Um, I'm thinking, like, I don't know if Cary Grant could pull off the emotional range of this movie, and I think part of the reason that Jimmy Stewart can do that, and I, I think it has to do a lot with his war experience, and I just, like, Cary Grant didn't really, you know, have that, and I'd, not that Jimmy Stewart wouldn't be able to do that without 
the war experience, but I just think he was able to take this into such an, a layered, emotional, kind of, like, sad place that that I don't know if Cary Grant could have could have pulled off this like all American feel that that Jimmy Stewart can get because Cary Grant's yeah, one not American so, <laughs> so I, yeah. yeah no it's true and I think the other thing too is Frank Capra probably wouldn't have been involved in the capacity that he was in this version and the scripts the three scripts that they created um for this like first pass were really different than the script that we ended up with so um after the studio chief of RKO um Charles Corner urged Frank Capra to read this um Capra's new production company called Liberty Films which had nine film distribution agreements with RKO he he saw the potential and he wanted to do it for his first Hollywood film after making documentaries for the war so this was like his first big movie back um but he ended up working with some writers who we've seen before, Frances Goodrich, her husband, Albert Hackett, Joe Swirling, Michael Wilson, and Dorothy Parker. Um, and they had like many drafts of the screenplay. So they took those kind of three initial versions and then combined them, but but altered them pretty dramatically to the version that we know today. So it would have been a totally different film if they'd done it in yeah. 1944 with Cary Grant. I think also you wouldn't have had that those writing you know powers on this movie had you done it with Car- with Car- Car- Grant and I think some of our listeners listeners would know Frances Goodrich and I don't remember her husband's name uh, ha- Hackett I Albert think Hackett yeah they they were they became very well known and famous for writing the scripts for The Thin Man and um and uh I think what you get with that with a husband and wife duo and a female in the writing room is a very very dynamic and kind of equal couple in 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 a movie as we see with Nick and Nora Charles and uh, and we kind of see that with Mary and George I mean obviously Mary is like a housewife but she I mean he she's equally as influential in how George makes his decisions um as he is I mean she's she's definitely like he looks to her a lot for advice and how he runs his business, she she definitely has a say when she wants to have a say. And I think you you get that because you have these like you know, you have these women in the these women in the writing room and you also have an actual husband and wife duo writing these characters. So the the love between them is really believable and it's not per it's not like a perfect Hollywood romance. It definitely has flaws, but it makes it even more endearing. And I and I think that it's just it's just a testament to like the team that that made this movie for sure. So what's interesting I think about this the writing of this was it was really not a harmonious collaboration Goodrich called Capra that horrid man um and Albert Hackett ultimately called him like uh an arrogant son of a bitch so it was very like yeah it was not like I think like a positive relationship he ended up kind of trying to slight um Joe Swirling too um they never I don't think they ever spoke again after this like I think he tried to have a little bit more too much control and like kind of do multiple versions with different people so that um end up kind of they combined a bunch of stuff together so I think Albert and Francis he just tried to kind of do like the best it was kind of like an amalgamation yeah and I think he kind of yeah he would put too much of his thoughts into it instead of like letting the writers do their work so they felt kind of like overshadowed and then like their version got kind of watered down when he did ultimately combine them so it was definitely not a good working relationship and I think none of them ever worked together again so definitely that's really interesting because um Frank Capra is and and I wonder what it would have been like had had 
uh, Robert Riskin wrote this movie because Frank Capra, prior to the war, was really well known for his collaborations with Robert Riskin, who wrote um, It Happened One Night and also another really good Barbara Stanwyck movie with Gary Cooper, uh, Me John Doe, which is a, a real... I think that might also be a Christmas adjacent movie i think that it happens on yeah, christmas or something and, yeah yeah and it's but it's also quite like it goes to quite a dark place as well and and kind of the message behind that movie is is um not not similar to this but it has a similar style of messaging in, in, in terms of social issues and and um believing in yourself and believing in your community but i i'm wondering like how this movie would have been made it had it been you know another risk in Capra collaboration I I think it would have been good I think we would have had a really good George Bailey character but again I think having women in the writing room it really I think it makes I think what really makes this movie just even better is is the Mary Hatch character I think I love her and I think that her presence in this movie is so beneficial and it adds so much to George's character alone and to the the relationship and the dynamic between everyone else and she's she kind of is his you know like when he's all over the place, she's kind of his like beacon of light that brings him back to reality and brings him back to kind of being centered. And I and I think having women and 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 married couples in the writing room just it's it's a total testament to that. Yeah, I I could not agree more. Um, yeah, I I think they ended up doing a really good job with with the script and it. You know, it's just again such an iconic film that has that nuance that I think maybe would have gotten missed had Francis not been involved in it. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We love to see it. <laughs> we love it. <laughs> well, shall we jump a little bit into the analysis for this movie? Yes, please. Let's do it. So I think we already kind of talked a little bit about this. I don't want to talk about it too much ad nauseum, but I think that what's really interesting for both Jimmy Stewart and Capra is that they had both fought in World War II. Um, Jimmy Stewart actually wasn't sure if he was going to return to film after his service. He had been flying combat missions, which is like pretty crazy. Capra, on the other hand, was involved in making documentaries, um, including the famous Why We Fight. Um, and so again, like I think that they had really experienced kind of um, the, the trauma of war firsthand. And that experience really changed them. So I think their approach to this film and kind of depicting war and also the sentiment of America at that time, um, it would have been really raw and real for them. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, what's also interesting to talk about with this film is that it's at least like partially kind of a period film, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. We talked about how it does start in his childhood and then in the 20s. It covers um, kind of the lows of the Great Depression, which, again, would have been, like, very present and, you know, a part of the collective experience of the audienceship at this time. So that part would have really, like, struck a chord with them. And, again, it was a a really big deal, obviously, um, and a big kind of part of that, like, collective experience that they were tapping into by kind of doing, like, basically 20 years of this man's life. Yeah, that's really interesting. I never thought about it as a period film, but it definitely is. That's that's fascinating. Yeah, and I think, you know, we obviously learn about that in in history classes, but I think that what's really interesting for them is is like they were really able to kind of build, I think a lot of kind of the darkness and kind of just showing like how people persevere or you kind of step up to the plate and do what you have to do because that would have been a reality for a lot of people watching this film like who had to kind of do what they needed to do to kind of get through these collective hardships and, and these experiences. So Absolutely. I think that's really interesting too. 
Absolutely. I think, like, at the end of the day, this film is is really about, like, a man who's willing to put his dream on hold again and again for the betterment of his community. It's kind of a selfless um, stance on, like, you know, doing the right thing even when you don't get exactly what you want. Um, I think most of the film is is really about, like, you know... And, and even, like, Clarence references it, too, like, how much impact one person can have on the lives of others and how that's just as valuable, if not more valuable, than someone who makes a bunch of money or is super famous or gets to travel all over the world or, or whatever it may be. Um, but that that, I think, has as much value. And I think that would have really resonated, again, with people kind of in this time where I think there was, like, a lot of, you know, how do you recover from something that has irrevocably like changed the world and you have all of these people returning back from war who have PTSD and who are changed in in like it is a different America than it was like pre-war um so I think this film really is kind of exploring some of those themes and showing that just by being yourself and doing the right thing like you're doing a really important thing for the world and I think that's pretty cool I agree. And I think the message of this movie is just, it's so timeless. It's so universal that that's why this movie continues to be um, as heartfelt and meaningful and impactful as it is in that, that as I think the, what as that the heart of this movie is community and as long as you are doing things and have people around you that love you life is going to be good and things are going to be okay and I think that's something we all just need to hear right now as well yeah I think it was interesting too because this analysis that I was reading was like comparing George Bailey essentially as like the embodiment of like America like Time and time again, America's gone through these hardships and they like pull together and kind of like do the right thing and make it work. Um, And I think like right now, especially that feels really comforting to think about that, like, you know, that those things can matter more than than other things, I think, especially in kind of times of of darkness or or just like really intense reflection, which I feel like is the time that we're experiencing right now. Um, I saw so many articles about this film um, of people kind of looking back at it, um, not only because it is the 75th anniversary of the release of this film, which is kind of cool, um, but also because I think that like we're in such a unique state right now that I think, again, like so many of these themes and ideas still feel really um, like relevant to us right now. Um, Mm -hmm. So I thought that was I totally agree. Tell us why this movie kind of resurged as such a classic like cultural zeitgeist moment (laughs) so let's talk about it because like I said this the reception to this film was super mixed they recorded a loss of like $525,000 which is baffling to me I mean it's it's hard for it's hard to understand that as as a society that just reveres this movie so much I know so, and it's interesting too, it was nominated for five Academy Awards. I think it did win one for technical achievement, which was a new method for simulating falling snow, which they had a lot of in this film. <laughs> um, but like I also mentioned, this was kind of the end of like Capra's golden era and I, he never really recovered to kind of his pre-war glory. But the reason that this has become such, I think, an important part of, of the zeitgeist and like cultural vernacular is that due to a clerical error copyright was not renewed for this film when it was up um 
after public domain baby yes and it (laughs) fell into the public domain in 1974 so a lot of tv stations started airing it around the holidays because it was free and widely available (laughs) amazing and it was because the holidays are a time where typically things aren't aired like very much like popular things aren't aired because people aren't assuming expecting to watch like networks weren't expecting people to watch tv during the holidays so having something that's free is just like yeah we can have this just play for 24 hours a day which is kind of what a lot of stations do it's like literally this or a christmas story is playing for 24 hours a day (laughs) that's amazing that's so funny yeah, it's so again, it's like kind of interesting that I think without that copyright lapse, I don't know that this film would be as widely kind of seen as a Christmas film. Capra didn't really intend this to be a, a Christmas film per se. Like, I think it does have obviously Christmas themes and is set at Christmas time, but I think he saw it as kind of looking at these, these like bigger themes and he wanted something to, as he called it, combat atheism, which I'm like, all right, whatever. But it's fine. Mm, okay, it's very, like... <laughs> I mean, Capra like, okay. was, like, um, probably, like, a staunch Catholic being, like, an super Italian Catholic. immigrant. <laughs> yeah, he was super Christian, um, which I thought was funny. But um, what is what is interesting, and this is, like, the interesting thing about public domain and copywriting, is that once it was in the public domain, they colorized a version of this, um, which is... The one I actually watched last night, I couldn't find. Um, so, uh, so I've seen both. I the black and white one is way better, but um, yeah. Tell me how you uh, would describe the colored version, or if you would agree with me, um, because I would probably, and I've thought a lot about this because the coloring is very odd, and it's I how very I, garish and unsettling. Yes, and how I would describe it is as clammy. <laughs> Like that's the best Ooh, word I can think about. Clammy is a good because it's way like to this, it. these like very washed out pastels, and the skin is like no one's skin is that smooth. No, <laughs> like you're just like yeah. Mm, do no. yourself a favor, watch the original black and white version, and that what's interesting is so they actually ended up copywriting the colorized version, and so now a lot of places will pay a lot of money to get the licensing for this like shitty looking colorized version. Both Capra and Stewart were like vehemently opposed to this version and they went as far as to testify in front of a congressional committee to try to get this like pulled and not be able to be copyrighted because they're like this is like literally wrong like it's not how this film was meant to be like done. I would I would join them on that crusade. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, there are some movies where I'm just like when you see colored versions of them you're just like what the hell is going on? It's just wrong and I think it looks strange. a lot of a lot of the nuance and like it's filmed like the cinematography is so beautiful and it's set up in a very specific way that you lose a lot of that with the colored version because again it's not a good colorization well that's like i think people don't understand like it's 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 really different to film a movie in black and white and the way that they would color costumes for the actors is not necessarily to, like, look nice in terms of the color patterns. Like, it was supposed to be stuff that just contrasted with what was in the background. Yeah, and it has to have, like, good texture. Yeah. Right, so it wasn't things that were, like, necessarily, like, realistic. So if you colorize them, it just, like, it looks wrong. Like, it doesn't look correct. It doesn't look like something that you would normally wear. And, and yeah, I mean, I think they were... I think if you watch old-school, um, like, three-strip Technicolor movies... While those are supposed to be in color, they still weren't sure how to actually, like, color costume 
like like characters and and costuming for those for those types of movies so it's like if you watch something like the wizard of oz for example it's so bold like the colors are just so fake looking so it's like either that or these black and white movies that have been later colored that are just like it neither of them look realistic at all yeah yeah it's really funny so black and white for the win definitely watched it in black and white although i did watch the color one and it was unpleasant yeah (laughs) Garish is not a good ideal. Word. I would say garish. I like. I like that. Yeah, it's it's very garish unsettling. and clammy. <laughs> garish and clammy. Yeah, try to watch the black and white one it, again. Like it just, it just it's it's so much. It's a much better experience. Um, well, I know we're kind of going long, but shall we jump into a few fun facts and then we can wrap up? Please, please. Okay, so what's kind of fun about the setting of this is like they had this whole town built out at RKO Studios which was in Culver City um they had this like 89 acre movie ranch in Encino um and they adapted this set from an Oscar winning film um called Cimarron which was 1931 um don't watch that movie just shout out to anybody (laughs) it's so boring Good to know. Well, it's you can terrible. get a hint of it here because they repurposed okay. that set. Um, and it's it's interesting because, like, I, I think you do get this very, like, lived-in feel f- for this set. Um, but I didn't realize how big it was. It's three city blocks with 75 stores, buildings, had a residential neighborhood. And then Capra and, um, added that, like, tree-lined kind of center parkway. He built a working bank set and he planted 20 full-grown oak trees. To make it feel like very real, we love the studio system. Yeah, um, he also it. let pigeons, cats, and dogs roam the set to give it like a lived-in feel, which I think really comes across. It does feel like the sleepy, yeah. established kind of, you know, upstate town. Yeah, um, it feels like a real kind of like an all-American town for sure. Yeah, um, we kind of talked about this earlier. The one Oscar that they did win was around like technical achievements. Um, the special effects lead russell shearman he developed a new compound to create snow and actually the history of snow in films is so interesting and i'm like obsessed super with it. fascinating yeah i feel like we could we could actually do like a whole episode on that because it is like really really interesting but he created this new compound which used water soap flakes fomite and sugar to create like this chemical snow before this uh, movie snow was made from untoasted cornflakes and it was so loud when you stepped on them that you had to dub over the dialogue after because you literally couldn't hear anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike the potato peels they would use as snow in Home Alone that would get brown really fast. <laughs> Ew. Wait, really? In Home Alone? Yeah. yeah, they used potato shavings as snow in Home Alone, but they would get browned so fast they had to use so many potatoes. Idaho was like, that's fine with us. <laughs> I would find that surprising. I feel like that would be like weird to me that a movie in the 90s would be using something that so clearly No, they would. did because, well, they had to do, because they filmed that movie in the summer, so they had to do something that wouldn't melt, like that, that wouldn't like disintegrate fast. They had to like use like a solid, something solid. Interesting. Um, yeah. Because wow. okay, they filmed well, that we'll movie like dead ass in the middle of summer. <laughs> You know, Christmas July, I'm, it's fine. I'm obsessed with the cornflakes thing. That is so funny. <laughs> Isn't that hilarious? So next time you have a bowl of cornflakes, which, I mean, who eats cornflakes anymore? But uh, think fondly of using They're it just snow. You just hear Clarence screaming, a man 
who has friends is not a failure. <laughs> Screaming at the top. Everyone's Just like, crunch, what? crunch, crunch. What? <laughs> um, okay, so last like little fun fact. Um, I guess I have two more, whatever. So Seneca Falls, New York has claimed that Capra was inspired to model Bedford Falls after visiting their town in 1945. They have an annual It's a Wonderful Life Festival in December. Um, they opened a Hotel Clarence in oh. 2009, <laughs> see, named after the Guardian Angel. Um, they also opened a It's a Wonderful Life Museum. <laughs> This so is all go, based on like conjecture, like it was not confirmed that Frank no, Capra actually I mean, made this Capra town. literally said that he he literally described Bedford as an every town. Like it does have that kind of like small town Americana Main Street America feel. So it's definitely not based on that, but they've really claimed it as their own to make it like their thing. What so. a, whatever works to get those tourists in, man. <laughs> So uh, check out Seneca Falls if you really want to, I guess, like live out this movie. <laughs> um, like I mentioned, this is the 75th anniversary of this film. Um, and both Capra and Stewart revealed that it was among their favorite films. Um, Capra loved it so much that he screened it for his family every Christmas. And that is so end. cute. Yeah, oh my that God. was my fun, my cute fun fact. You got to end on like a, a sweet one. <laughs> Well, I love this movie, and I'm I'm sorry to those that don't. You're really missing out. <laughs> well, hopefully this analysis and background gave you some new appreciation on why you should give it another chance. Agreed, agreed, and um, yeah. So that was our that was our episode on It's a Wonderful Life, a classic Christmas film, um, to to round out our holiday season special. Yeah, thank you guys for listening. We've had so much fun doing these. I mean, who doesn't love watching? christmas movies all december long we were gonna do it anyways yeah and we now we got to do it with a purpose and try some fun new drinks too oh um thank you so much for asking lydia uh you <laughs> like specials that's so interesting because we have more coming up <laughs> yeah get ready um we're doing thematic months for probably the foreseeable future so get excited <laughs> Um, we've really liked having something to kind of like guide us through the month and um, hit hit some of our favorites, all time favorites, and then also some films that are classics that maybe we haven't you know gotten to know and love quite. Consider as much. consider the first three months of this podcast the Hitchcock themed months, and then the rest <laughs> of them are not. And then we just, you know, it, then it became a film podcast. It's fine. Then it became a film podcast, but we are kind of hearkening back to our our. Um, old uh vintage you know golden age hollywood uh roots uh for the month of january and we've been talking about the studio system so much so we decided to do a bit of um an evolution of the studio system um deep dive for the month of january so we're going to be dropping more double features throughout uh the month of january going through the beginning the rise and the fall of the studio system and we're going to start us off with a really fun episode on the history of the studio system in general before we dive into our films and i'm really excited about it me too i i love learning about the the history of it i think that that's always super fun you always learn so many cool things that you didn't know about and i think again like as a cinephile like it just gives you a much deeper appreciation and understanding for why films are the way they are and and how we kind of ended up with I think some of some of our favorites and classic iconic films 
Yeah, and we're really excited about the lineup that we've we've come up with, with for you guys. Banger after it's banger, good. you guys. It's yeah. going to be it's, so fun. No, it's it's pretty bomb. I'm not gonna lie, it's good. Like I get excited but, just thinking about it. I know. Um, but we did discuss a bit of our a bit of the studio system during our Hollywood uh, Haze Code episode. So if you want to kind of brush up, I'd recommend going and re-listening to that because it's a good one to kind of talk about a specific aspect of the studio system. But we're gonna go much deeper into kind of the history of the studio system as a whole and not focus so much on the Haze Code, even though it was a huge part of the studio system. But we already did an episode on that, so. We're going to focus on other aspects of the culture around the film industry during um, probably between, I would say, uh, early 20s through the 60s is what we're going to focus on because that's probably the rise and fall of the studio system. So, well, join us next week um, as we start off our January special on the rise and fall of the studio system. And until then, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and as usual, cheers! Cheers! <laughs>